This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Running On Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode, we're exploring trust. It's a key component of any sporting environment. Without a collective trust, the foundations can crumble. It's a powerful emotional binding agent that lies at the heart of a successful sporting culture. It can equally apply to an individual pursuit, trust in oneself, a technique, training program, a target, but mostly it's about the confidence of relying on others around you to work towards a common goal. My guest is a knight of the realm and one of only three men to have captained England's test cricket team to Ashes series victories over Australia, both home and away. His longtime coach, Andy Flower, described him as tough and resilient. As a captain, he balanced a firm hand and moral compass with a compassion and empathy that meant he was loved and respected in the dressing room by his players and staff. Quite the character reference for a man who played 100 test matches, led England from the depths to the top of the world test rankings, and for a batsman who scored 21 test centuries in amassing more than 7,000 runs at an average of almost 41. After retiring from playing, he served as director of English cricket and played a pivotal role in laying the foundations of the extraordinary World Cup triumph in that glorious summer of 2019. There are a few better, more experienced men then to discuss emotion in sport as a whole and that critical emotion of trust within a team environment, few who've been able to engender it better than Sir Andrew Strauss OBE. Thank you so much. A great pleasure to be here. That's a big (laughs) build-up. It's a big (laughs) build-up. Your career encompassed so much and of course I've highlighted the overwhelming successes but of course like every sporting life you've seen the other side in equal measure would you describe your your cricketing journey as a pretty emotional one of course I think any international or professional sports person when you sign your first contract you are getting on an emotional roller coaster and you're never quite sure whether the next it's going to be an upward slant or a downward one and that's kind of what you're signing up for. The emotions are so high because obviously the consequences are so high both personally and collectively whether you do well whether you do badly all the people that are watching you all their hopes and dreams and aspirations are sort of connected with that as well especially when you're talking about international sport there's so many people that are vying for your position you have that kind of slight competition with either your teammates or the people waiting in the wings so it's a very very hard journey to go on and you've got to buckle up and and be prepared for it because the challenge is not so much what happens on the pitch it's dealing with all that emotional baggage that accumulates over the time as well. Yeah I'm quite sure you spent your childhood across three continents really didn't you you were born in South Africa short spell in Australia before your family came to rest here in England what impacted your your mum and dad and and obviously your three sisters as well, have on your kind of early sporting activities? I think just generally, my parents were very focused on driving us, mainly academically more than anything, really. You know, they wanted us to to do well. I think it's quite a South African trait, really. They wanted us to, to get good, solid professional careers and all that sort of stuff. And in order to do that, we had to do well at school. They were very sporty, but I think sporty was much more of a sort of recreational thing. Do loads of sports for a bit of fun, but the the main focus needs to be on the work. What that did embed in all of us actually was quite a strong work ethic, which I think, you know, if I had to focus on one thing that's important, if you want to get to the top, is obviously that being willing to do the hard yards and, and 
do the practice and the nets and all that sort of stuff. So I think that stood me in, in very good stead. And the competition, what about the competitive element? When did you recognise that you were a, a deeply competitive beast? <laughs> right from the moment, I had three older sisters. So I didn't have that competition the same way that maybe someone would have with an older brother, but I just remember playing tennis with my, my older sister, Colleen, who's a good tennis player, and if I lost, I was crying. It was as simple as that. And <laughs> I'd try not to show it, but generally I would... And still to this day, you know, I was playing table tennis with my son two days ago. And you when let him win? Day, I, no, no, of course not. No. Good. Um, <laughs> uh, and in fact, you know, he's competitive as well. So you run the risk of things flying off the handle somewhat. But it's one of those things you either have or you don't really, isn't it? I think so. When did it first dawn on you that you had a kind of God-given talent for for hitting a cricket ball and and would you be able to kind of go back and try and describe the emotions that cricket used to elicit for you, perhaps when you were playing when you didn't have that crazy pressure and scrutiny on you? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think where I'm different to a lot of professional sports people is I wasn't incredibly good as a youngster. You know, I wasn't one of these standout figures. That everyone's going, this guy's going to be an, an international cricketer, there's no doubt about it. I, I was good at cricket. I was I was a pretty handy sports person generally, and so I was playing in all the first teams at school and whatever, but there's a big jump between that and, and going on and having a professional career. And, and I think it was probably the last couple of years at school and then leading into to university, and I went to Durham University, which is a very strong cricketing university. I found myself in the first team there, and I looked round, and everyone else had a county contract, and suddenly I thought, wow, it, look, you know, if they can do it, I, I'm not seeing anything they've got that I don't. So maybe this is a viable option for me. Where cricket was different from other sports, I played quite a lot of rugby as well, was naturally I'm quite calm. I've got a calm temperament. I don't, I'm not flustered and I don't get too up or too down. So when we're talking about emotions, I'm quite good at, I suppose, suppressing my emotions to a degree. And I think in cricket that helps you. As a batsman, you, you have those initial stages where the heart is beating fast and the opening bowler is coming with a new ball and the match situation is all about you finding a way of getting through those initial salvos. And I think being able to calm yourself down and just play the ball as it comes down is a, is a great strength to have, whereas rugby actually was much more about getting yourself up for the physical confrontation, you know, getting the heart beating and all that sort of stuff. And so... It just happened that cricket suited me better than any other sport. I love that quote from Seb Coe that you don't choose your sport, your sport chooses you. And, and I suppose the combination of me having a good eye-ball coordination, having that temperament really sort of led me in the direction of cricket. Interesting. You mentioned it there briefly, that your kind of ability in a way to sort of suppress some of your emotions. I've heard you describe your upbringing in the past as kind of a little bit stiff upper lip, which I'm guessing is a generational thing for many uh, people of your parents' generation and mine too. You're away at boarding school. There's an mm. element of fending for yourself there as well, isn't there? Did you find that you developed an ability to kind of display your emotions that perhaps didn't come quite so naturally at first? I do think going to boarding school, almost inevitably, what happens in that environment is you just crack on as a kid who's 14, 15, 16, you're not going to be opening up to your mates about every little thing that's going on in your head. So, you know, I, I do think you find a way of, A, gaining independence away from your parents and B, just finding a way through. And that's definitely not for everyone and for some people that has an effect on them. But I think for me, it's funny, you know, when I went into the professional cricket world and I was away from home for long periods of time, so I was away from my support network, that didn't feel all that unusual to me. You've done whereas, all that. <laughs> yeah, whereas someone like Steve Harmison was a great example. You know, his village where he came from, his parents were around the corner and whatever, that was his community, and he felt very strongly associated and connected with that, and therefore going away from that felt like a big stretch. It was less of a stretch for me, definitely. So I hesitate to bring this up because it's quite obviously so traumatic for you and your incredible sadness at your, your wife. Ruth's passing, I'm sure, played a big part in this as well since your retirement. Have you become a little bit more accepting of emotion and, and perhaps your willingness to display it both for yourself and perhaps for your boys too? Yeah, of course. You know, I, I think going through that journey with Ruth, 
anyone who experiences something like that, there are all sorts of facets to it. So on the one hand, I think it makes you appreciate what's really important and all these things that we strive for are all, all secondary to your family and your health and you only get tested in that regard when something like that happens. So I think in that sense, in terms of changing my priorities away from just achieving all the time to just connecting with Ruth and the boys, that that was massively important. And then secondly, it's an incredibly fraught emotional journey that you go on. And I think what you realise actually very quickly is this is not one that you can suppress. And if you try and suppress it, it's probably going to be damaging for you in the long term. So... The hard thing when Ruth was still alive was this concept of we're on this treatment at the moment and there's another treatment option, but we kind of knew right from the start that this was going to end where it ended. So it was a case of when and not if. And my instinct was always like, well, let's not worry about that too much now. Let's just take one day at a time. And she was incredibly brave and courageous to do this, said, no, look, I, I need to deal with death. I need to deal with that whole prospect in order for me to be able to enjoy the rest of the time I have on this earth. And so we we met up with this incredible lady, Jenny Thomas, who's a child grief and loss counsellor. And, and she helped us to talk and to let those emotions out and to articulate our fears. And definitely in Ruth's case, you know, allow her to be able to vocalise what she wanted for the boys going forward and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that was incredibly emotional and sitting on that sofa, crying our eyes out and and connecting in a way that maybe it was very hard for us to go there on our own. And from that moment on, I've always had Jenny there as a, as a sort of source of comfort and support. And then, of course, post-Ruth's death, there is that, that grief process, which is so hard to control. It's uncontrollable. And the emotions are so deep and guttural that you've just got to sit with it and allow it to take its course and there were times where you think about crying you know this was crying at a level that just sobbing in a way that you just I'd never experienced before and you have to do that in order to get it out Uh, and for me to be able to play my role as a, a father and to guide my children through that it was very important that I was able to cry in front of them and say how I was feeling and give them permission to do the same if if that's what they wanted to do. And of course, that's fed in, isn't it, really powerfully to to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, which you, you set up in her memory, which at least in part, along with trying to find funding for the research of the particular cancer that she died from, as I understand it, it's really focusing, isn't it, on helping the emotions of the families, the children in particular, of, of those who've had parents with life-limiting illness. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the focus is very much around providing professional help and support for families who are going through that awful prospect of losing a parent to cancer. You know, we're talking about 40,000 kids a year who are going through this and I think 14,000 families. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are going through that and it's an incredibly tough journey almost needless to say that the kind of family support element is not a priority. You know, the the priority for the NHS is treating the disease. And so a lot of families just don't have that support network that they need. And our sort of argument is if you can prepare people properly for it, if you can have those conversations before someone dies, it does help the process on the other side. You know, the grieving process is always going to be there and you're not going to wake up the next morning and feel fine and dandy. That's not what we expect. But I think if if you feel like you've got a ready-made network, if you feel like you've had some really good conversations, if you know as much as you can what to avoid doing for kids and what to, to promote, then at least you're on a on a track right from the start, whereas if you're starting that process when your grief is at its worst, it's just, it's a very difficult place. To be. Yeah, well, it's it's such powerful work, Andrew, and so much good luck in your efforts to Thank sustain you. all of that through the next few years. We've jumped ahead, obviously, a little bit. If I can take you back to your early steps into the kind of elite cricketing world, 
the key influences on you, particularly in Middlesex, I guess. Fair to say, Justin Langer and and Angus Fraser, the two you would you would pick out, perhaps who who left lasting impressions. Yeah, on you? yeah, very much so. I, I mean, I was so lucky going into that Middlesex dressing room in the late nineties, where you had. Mark Ramprakash and Phil Tufnell and Mike Gatting was still around. Justin Langer came in as the overseas player and, and Angus Fraser was this Middlesex stalwart, really. And so these are guys that had all played a lot of international cricket and you'd be stupid as a young player not to try and pick their brains and learn from them. So for me, Justin Langer very much on the what it takes to be an international cricketer. So the the commitment, the the discipline, the pushing yourself, the training, the practice, the fitness the mental toughness and fortitude, you know, all of that, his attitude was in complete contrast to county cricket, which was soft and easy <laughs> and it's all tea. one big fa- family <laughs> and, yeah, going out for a few beers in the evening and isn't this fun and blah, blah, blah. And it was just kind of like, well, you know, it just became apparent to me that if I went down the county route, I'd never make it. So I, I had to sort of try and... Think fo- bigger. Yeah, exactly. I had, to, I had to sort of set myself on a different course and, and learn from Justin. And then... Angus Fraser was very much around trusting your teammates, creating a, a family around you, supporting each other. He was just this incredible character that would do anything for anyone and would also call a spade a spade. If you weren't pulling your weight, he'd stand up and go, that's just not good enough. So he, he was just this incredible mentor for me and still is to this day. Very lucky to have those two people, actually. Yeah, well, we'll get into the sort of teamship element in in a minute or two. If I can address the kind of... The batting situation first, because from a, a, a trust perspective, I mean, you made a century on your test debut at Lords, May 2004 against New Zealanders. I mean, this is boy's own stuff, isn't it, at this point? <laughs> um, I cannot imagine. It's a long time ago now. Yeah, way, but, but I mean, the emotions that must have been swirling in your head as you walk out to bat in those circumstances. But to survive and obviously thrive the way that you did on that day and subsequently, there has to be massive trust in your skill set, surely, your technique, and indeed, you mentioned it before, your mental strength. Yeah, trust in your method, really. And in that regard, I was lucky. So I made my test debut at 27 on the back of three or four really productive years for Middlesex with the bat. I was opening the batting for Middlesex. I was scoring 1,000 runs every year. I was captain, and I was a bit more mature. So I think when my England chance came along, I was old enough to realise that this is my game. It may not be good enough to play international cricket. It's worked for me up till now. When the pressure's at its greatest, I really need to stick with it. So I think I had a pretty well-embedded game at that point that I was willing to trust. What I didn't know and what no one knows is how you're going to react to that situation. The glare of the camera. I mean, you feel it. You feel like the Sky Sports camera's on you and you feel the commentators talking about you. And because you're making your debut, you are the talking point for a moment. So... It's much harder then than it is once you're more established in the team. And then, of course, you've got these question marks in your mind as to, well, I've always watched international cricket. It's always very difficult. And these guys just look like superhumans. So can I, am I actually just got the skills and the capabilities to be able to deal with the opposition and the sledging and all that sort of stuff that's built up massively. So when I look back at that first innings of mine, I think what it does come back to again is, my temperament really helped me. I remember walking out there with Marcus Driscothic and my heart beating very quickly. But once I got to the middle and started taking my guard, I remember thinking, I've got this. This is It's literally like another day at the office for me. I go back to my routine that I've done thousands of times before. I tap my bat on the ground. I look up and the ball is running in at me. And now I just watch the ball. And I think that seems quite simple and obvious. But I think for a lot of cricketers the mind gets scrambled in those moments when the pressure's really on. And so that's what got me through more than anything, I think. Um, By 05, you were a key part of that amazing Ashes winning team, cricket capturing the imagination of the whole country. England won back the Ashes for the first time since, what was it, 1986. You, You scored arguably your finest century, one of your finest centuries anyway at the Oval, didn't you? How much did you have to trust, again, yourself, your temperament, your your technique um, when you're batting against... Not, not just any old bowlers. You're, you're facing some of the greatest bowlers the world has ever seen in Glen McGrath and Shane Warne. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what that series really showed me was that there was Test cricket and there was Ashes cricket and those were two completely different things. And, and the Ashes cricket, on the one hand, it was that 
increased expectation and interest that you wouldn't get in another series, you know, especially that 2005 series where for the first time in goodness knows how long people thought we had a genuine chance to win. And then secondly, you're playing against a level of cricketer that was at that time, they were the best team in the world by a long way. And they had probably five out of the top 10 players in the world, probably in their team. So, and with incredible reputations and auras about them. So you had to sort of try and find a way of just playing the ball and not the man, which was difficult. Yeah, um, very hard to do with, yeah. against characters like that. Yeah, and with Shane Warne, I mean, that was almost impossible to do, which <laughs> I found out to my... He was all over me like a rash throughout the whole series, and that's not a nice place to be. But the interesting thing about that series, you know, talk about my sort of natural default mindset is kind of like calm, composed, not getting into the emotion of things. And I, and I think what Michael Vaughan did very well with that series is said we have to step into the emotion of this. So we've got to feed off the crowd. We've got to allow the crowd to get us going. And we've got to go at these guys. He sort of articulated it in the sense that the Australians were like bullies. And if you weren't willing to stand up at them and get in their face and be willing to show you have stomach for the fight, then they'd trample over you. So for me, that was a slightly different mindset. And I had to work quite hard to get myself in that. But actually, it, it stood me in good stead because there were moments, and I, I remember that second test at Edgebaston against Shane Warne, where he came on to bowl and we'd lost the first test and we'd talked about you got to go at these guys. You can't just sit there and wait to get out. And so I remember his second ball or something, I remember thinking to myself, I've got to go down the wicket and hit him over the top here, which is not something I'd naturally do. But I felt so well supported from the team element that this is our tactics, this is what we talked about, that I knew that I wouldn't get castigated for trying it at least. And so I went down, whacked him over his head and, you know, Marcus and I got the team off to a decent start. And then we had that brilliant partnership between... Peterson and Flintoff, you know, from that moment onwards, almost the whole momentum of the series had changed. Yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary series, wasn't it? And inevitably, we all hold up the good times. And then the bad times inevitably come around, bad run of form as standard procedure for, for all batsmen of, of every different calibre. Is that when trust in your game kind of disappears in your mind? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the interesting thing is when you've had a sustained period of bad form, you get caught between two schools of thought. So on the one hand, you're thinking, well, insanity is the definition of just trying to do the same thing over and over again. Like if you feel like there's, it's not working, then you're thinking, I've got to rethink the way I play here. I might have to make some technical adjustments. I might have to try and play at a different tempo. I may have to work on various weaknesses of mine. On the other hand, in many ways, it's the worst possible time to change your game because when you're not feeling confident, if you let go of everything that you've built up over a number of years, what is left? There's yeah. nothing left there. And there's so many instances of people just completely trying to change everything in search of that magic kind of solution. And there isn't one there. So you get caught between the two of them. Generally, I was pretty good at just sticking with what I knew worked for me and maybe just working on one or two little things. But I got dragged into it. You know, I made a couple of quite big, technical changes when I was out of form, which on reflection probably didn't help me. You know, I kind of started working on my weaknesses rather than focusing on my strengths. And so what ended up happening is my weaknesses became slightly less weak, but they were still weak. Yeah. And I'd forgotten my, my strengths weren't very strong anymore. And so you just became a sort of pale impersonation of your former self, which I think a lot of batsmen fall into that trap. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a mental situation, isn't it? I mean, you were drops. You, were, you didn't have many bad runs of form in your... England career, but in, in 07 you had dropped, given another shot in, in 2008, weren't you, in New Zealand. You've spoken a fair bit about one particular innings, mm. uh, Andrew, which have effectively saved your test career in, in Napier. You felt it was last chance saloon, this one. You were on a pair, you'd made a duck in the first innings. And as I understand it, you completely changed your, your mental approach. I think for the best part of 18 months up to that point, all I was consumed by to a certain degree was that point. Like coming to the point where my place in the England team was on the line and I was getting dropped. And it was a horrendous thought. You know, the more you think about it, if you've been an England player for a, an extended period of time, you know, it becomes your family. It's all bound up in being part of that team. And so your sense of worth and everything. And obviously the idea of being dropped is humiliating for you, for, for starters, a public humiliation, the like of which not many people have to endure. 
it's obviously very hard for your family and your coaches and all those that support network around you. And then for you yourself, you're consumed by a negative thought, isn't it? Which is, I don't want to be dropped. And so right up to that point, that was what was driving me was, I don't want to be dropped. And I came out for that final innings. I'd got a duck in the first innings. I knew I needed 100. Like Getting a 50 wasn't going to be good enough, really. When you put it like that, it's so brutal. Yeah. You needed 100 to save it. And it was it was obvious, you know, it was obvious to to me, my teammates, the coaches, the media, all in recruit supporters. And I remember just thinking to myself that morning, this isn't gonna happen. Like the the chances of this happening are so minute. So I've just got to let it go. And what I'm gonna do is a little bit like on my debut where I might only get one chance to play cricket for England. If this is my final innings for England, then I just want to appreciate it and enjoy it and savour it as much as I can. I'm not going to give my wicket away today. So if, if they get me out, they've got me out. But otherwise, I'm just going to play each ball and, and see what happens, knowing full well that it's just probably not going to happen for me. And, you know, with that attitude, complete mindset shift, I played brilliantly. You know, I scored 177, was more patient than I'd ever been in my life. And had that just sort of serenity about me that kind of what will be will be. You know, I'm not in control of this. The gods are in control of this. And if it's meant to be, I'll come through. Amazing. Amazing story and a real lesson, I think, probably to everybody yeah. facing any kind of stress and or If pressure. only I could get back in that mindset. You know, <laughs> it's an interesting thing, isn't it, with, with emotions and with mindsets. Often it's a confluence of a lot of things coming together and it just happened to work for me on that day. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What about as captain? Trust as a captain is, is absolutely critical. How difficult was it for you at the outset to kind of engender trust and, and credibility too when you were initially establishing yourself, particularly at Middlesex, as, as a captain aged 24? You had some mm. long-standing campaigners in that dressing room at the time as well, didn't you? Well, look, A, there were some long-standing campaigners, the likes of Phil Tufnell and um, Paul Weeks and a number of others. B, I was clueless. I was so clueless. You know, I wasn't ready. Angus Fraser abruptly retired to all our surprise. You know, I think we thought he had another year or two left in him. And so I was thrust into this position. But I was ambitious and I I felt like I could do the job. But actually, I I think when I look back at my first couple of years at Middlesex, I tried to be someone I wasn't really. I I tried to play the leader role and I tried to be like kind of in your face. Not in your face, but like, come on, lads, let's go and, and be a bit more confrontational than perhaps I would naturally. And so I found that very stressful and... Ultimately, I, I think over the, that period of time, I realised that I just need to sort of relax into this a bit more and be myself and be authentic. And I think my strength as a captain and as a person really is around bringing people together, perhaps having empathy for people and bring everyone along that journey and not sort of leave people behind. And so over time, I think I, I started to understand that about myself. But it's hard when you haven't really done it before to understand what your point of difference is. How am I different as a leader to Michael Vaughan or to Nasser Hussain or whatever? You just don't know that to begin with. So I think I learned that early on. And then where I was fortunate taking over the captaincy with England in a way was I took over in pretty ugly circumstances. You know, Kevin Peterson and Peter Moores had both been removed from their positions. The team was quite disjointed and disunited. And 
they were really looking for a figure to bring everything together. Not just the the powers that be, but the players themselves. They were kind of like, well, I just don't like this atmosphere. Just want to kind of come together and, and get behind someone. And I suppose I was the right captain at the right time in that sense. You could look at that two ways, couldn't you? You were either entering a bit of a snake pit. A previous regime had pointed all the support staff, hadn't they? You didn't really have a coach in place once Peter Moores had been sacked. As you mentioned, the players a little bit divided. In some ways, quite a difficult place to establish trust and a a kind of new pathway. But did you feel actually all of those circumstances played to your strengths? I think they did. One thing I had going into that position as captain is I think pretty much everyone in the team, including the support staff, respected me just generally because I was quite a senior player and I think I'd kind of made the most of myself as a cricketer, even though I wasn't world-class, I was good enough. So I think people kind of respected me for the way I, I went about my business. My focus at the start was kind of like, wow, I've seen how easily things can go wrong, both on the trust front, but also just in terms of alignment about what we're trying to do. And the problem is if if you have that lack of alignment, what people do is just look after themselves. So we had a lot of people that just retreated back into, I just need to make sure I'm, I stay in the team. And so... I just thought my role was, A, I think there was a little bit of work for us to do to kind of confront some of the the issues and the baggage that accumulated over time. And Andy Flower was brilliant at that. And we, we used an outside consultant, Alan Stevens, to help us do that a bit as well. But more than anything, it was just sitting like, come on, guys, we're, we're in this team together here. Why are we here? What are we trying to achieve as a group of people? And we set out on this idea of being the best England team ever, which seemed pretty lofty. And at that time, we were like miles away from it. But I think people just got excited about that as a prospect. So it's got people emotionally connected with the kind of goal, the the vision, I suppose. And from that moment on, as long as they trusted us as leaders to to make decisions that were in the best interest of the team, I think we got the kind of critical mass of the senior players on board and it became increasingly easy, especially when you start winning, obviously. Of course, if you win, yeah. it makes it a lot easier for you. Changes everything. Yeah. Your relationship with Andy Flower, obviously key, the head coach at the time. So much trust between you, I'm sure there still is. Why do you think your characters dovetailed so well? First of all, you know, like you just connect with some people and you don't connect with others. I think we just had that connection... I don't know what it came from, you know, both left-handed batsmen. Andy was very straight-talking. I loved his style, in some ways quite un-English, but I loved that. He would say exactly what he thought to you, but he'd do it in a in a way that wasn't necessarily confrontational. It was just like, this is what I see. And our philosophies on cricket were quite similar. So the combination of me being a bit more focused on the people side of the team... That makes it sound like I was sort of touchy-feely, but I don't think I was. I had a, quite a good feel for how the team were doing, just how the team was operating. And then he was much more on the task and the focus and let's drive ourselves to do things that people had never done before. So that I think that combination worked really well. And, of course, you'd obviously seen previous examples, hadn't you, of kind of coach, captain, trust, the likes of Nasser Hussain and Michael Vaughan with Duncan Fletcher and probably of little trust between... Andrew Flintoff and Duncan Fletcher between Kevin Peterson and Peter Moores. So did, did that shape your thinking again as to as to how to go about things on the grounds that you'd seen what hadn't worked as well? 100% right. And some of those relationships where trust broke down, it broke down on a number of levels, but mainly they had very different philosophies on what was right for the team and perhaps baggage had accumulated before they, they got into positions of leadership or authority but the the truth is you know if the people at the top aren't aligned and trust each other then there's nothing there's no foundation there and I remember very early on Andy and I having a conversation around the one non-negotiable for both of us we were sort of looking at our roles and responsibility was in front of the team in public we were absolutely aligned that was had to be given and any conversations or arguments or whatever that we had between us would be between us I think we both stuck with that the whole way through our time in in those leadership positions, even though often we didn't agree. And I'm thinking back to certain tactics and selections or whatever where we violently disagreed. But actually, once the decision was made, we kind of stuck together on that. Players will look to the leadership, A, for guidance, but they also look for those strictures, those little moments where actually things aren't aligned there. And if they find it, 
either subconsciously or consciously, they will try and use that for their advantage. So they'll go to one of the leaders and go, you know, it's a nightmare what we're doing here or whatever. And suddenly everything sort of breaks down very quickly. The house of cards falls. So I, I think that foundation of trust between the people at the top is crucial. And then obviously it's about embedding that, both that trust and that kind of psychological safety in the team where people feel they're able to voice what they really feel and what they really think. And until they trust you, they never do that. They may nod their heads and go, yeah, this is great, but probably behind closed doors, they're going, they're saying something very different. And with that, it seems to me, you you kind of tried to hand some of the control to the players, didn't you? There was an element of of involving them a little bit more in decision-making. And one of the byproducts of that seemed to be to be removing quite a lot of excuses that potentially could have come up with and increasing accountability. Yeah, very much. I mean, the the players will always blame the coaches if things aren't going well and the coaches will always blame the players. So you have that kind of dynamic playing out. And I I just hated the idea of these guys who are the best cricketers in the country in their mid to late 20s being treated like school children. And I remember saying to one of the coaches at the time when I took over as captain, that we've got to trust these guys to do the right thing here. These guys are... They're the best we've got in this country. And I remember one of the coaching staff saying, well, I agree with you, but I'm just not sure this team's ready for that yet. And I'm like, when, when will it be, be ready? ready? Yeah. And, unless we actually give them a bit of flexibility and a bit of freedom. And, and so we introduced all, a whole raft of measures around some practices that were completely optional. We didn't have curfews and all that sort of stuff. I remember this is literally the day after I took over his captaincy and we were flying out to the West Indies the next day. And I was like, you know, guys... It's over to you. You're not going to have someone coming up to you and say, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'm trusting you that we're a professional team, we're representing England, that we're going to do the right things. And everyone's like, this is brilliant, this is fantastic. And on the flight, three or four of the players got absolutely off their face. And I'm like, oh, no, this couldn't have got any worse. (laughs) Whole philosophy's come crashing down. You know, it's kind of like we had to give them that wriggle room to understand that, okay, the headmaster's not looking at you here, so you've got to judge yourself to a degree and you've got to do what's right for you and and recognise that if you let yourself down, you're letting the team down as well. So that philosophy was very embedded in everything we did. A strong core of senior players who very strong voices on on how the team operated, you know, we came, all that sort of stuff that sounds a little bit kind of corporate around the team charter and all that sort of stuff. But actually... If you're living it, it does make a big difference, kind of how we do things around here. And families were important to you, weren't they? Because there had been this notion, certainly going back through the ages, that, that families were in some way a distraction to, to an England cricket team on, on tour. So you, I'm sure, ensured that they were kind of focused as opposed to distracted. But how significant was that as a, as a sort of shift in policy? Yeah, I, well, I, I just thought it was very important because we all know that if someone's feeling out of form or not playing well, often it's not just about what's going on on the field, it's what's happening off the field and, and vice versa. And so we we wanted to, as much as possible, make the the wives, the kids, the families feel like they were part of this bubble. They weren't excluded from it. And actually right up to that point, they'd been horribly excluded. Like, you know, if we'd won a game, the lads would go out and celebrate and the families weren't allowed to be there. And and as you say, like from a media perspective, there was always that thing, oh, the wives and girlfriends are arriving on tour. Well, England aren't going to play well because they've been distracted. I mean, it was all rubbish, but the perception was there. And so we had to sort of run counter to that perception and really make people feel wanted as much as possible. Although there were times where we had to make choices. I remember one, the Ashes tour in 2011, Andy Flower saying, look, I think it's really important that the the families travel separately for the players, just so the players have a little bit of a break and an opportunity to kind of reconnect while the families are here. And it it felt uncomfortable to do that. But instead of just saying, this is what we're doing, you know, Andy and I went and met all the the wives and described how things were going to operate and just try to listen to their perspectives on things. So we, we didn't just shove it in their faces. We kind of made them part of that process as well. I'm interested in the team dynamic about friendship groups and how a team actually gets on amongst itself. Do you think friendships are important within a successful playing squad? It seems to me that they're not always 
directly aligned, great friendships, great spirit of friendship between a, a team and success. I mean, I always go back to the 2003 World Cup winning yeah. squad. Fantastic bunch of blokes. But there weren't huge numbers of really tight friendships. And yet on the pitch, for whatever reason, it works. How important are friendships, do you think, in a, a team environment? Is it diff- different in cricket because you're away so much? No, I, I, I totally subscribe to that. I mean, look, when you're on a cricket tour, you've got 25 or 30 people there. You've got the players, the support staff, the coaching staff. It's impossible to think that everyone's going to get on brilliantly and you're going to be around the dinner table every night and hugging each other. I mean, it's unbelievable. That just doesn't happen, does it? So you always have your group of players that either you feel more comfortable with or you have more in common with. And that's that's fine. I think it's really important to embrace that difference, different thinking, different views on life, different backgrounds. I think that's a really important part of a, a functioning team. So what's more important, I think, is around alignment on what you're trying to do as a team and effectively putting the team before the individual, which, again, is one of those cliches that comes out which people actually don't do as much as you think. Particularly in cricket, is that fair? Because it's essentially an individual pursuit in a in a team environment. If you're a batsman, it matters to you enormously that you're making runs. If you're a bowler, that you're taking wickets. I appreciate a bowler needs fielders and, and all the rest of yeah. it. But it's an interesting dynamic, that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think the team culture either helps or hinders in that regard. So if the team culture, if the senior players are essentially selfish and looking after themselves, then everyone else will do the same and vice versa. Having that alignment around what it is we're trying to do around here is really important. And then actually, you know, it comes to trust very quickly about, do I actually trust that guy to deliver when the the chips are down and we really need him to step up and face Mitchell Johnson or, or come in as a night watchman or bowl 30 overs a day? And if I trust him, hopefully he trusts me to do the same. And so when you start talking about trust, you know that trust is not something that just happens. Like it builds over a period of time by watching people, by understanding what makes them tick, by ultimately you demonstrating that you're trustworthy, but also like in relationships, it only takes a moment or two for that trust to come crashing down. And once someone puts themselves ahead of the team once and everyone sees that, then everyone on one level or another is worried that when push comes to shove, they'll do that again. And that's, as I said, the house of cards comes tumbling down very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you quite obviously handled some big personalities. Someone like Andrew Flintoff had the capacity, in your words, to bend the will of the gods, which I think is a a lovely phrase because we all saw it happening at various different moments. Was it a case of you just trusting him to deliver on a big stage in the manner that you just mentioned? Was it yeah, always I think that way? I mean, no one ever had any concerns about Fred delivering on the park or giving absolutely everything he could to help England win games of cricket. You know, that, I think that that was never a problem with him. I think just sometimes with him, it was more about his preparation. This is in the days prior to... I mean, he looks looks a million dollars these days, doesn't he? Does. he? But, you know, not drinking and eating healthily and whatever. But he'd come from a, a sort of Lancashire dressing room in England on 19 setup or whatever, where it's still about having a good time and going and having a Burger King and having a few pints and whatever. And so that was quite deeply embedded in him. And, and he always had to be sort of worked on quite hard to just make sure that he's giving himself the best chance. But other than that, I mean, he had that incredibly charismatic ability to basically go, I'm charging through that door, you will come with me. And so he was incredibly valuable in that respect in the team. I'm guessing, therefore, very easy to trust on on the pitch. Kevin Peterson, the enigma wrapped in a riddle, brilliant, genius batsman in all kinds of ways. I mean, essentially, he had a good relationship, it seemed to me, up until the verge of your retirement in Mm. 2012. His beef before that moment seemed to be largely with the ECB over his availability to play in the IPL rather than with you personally. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, that was something that was sort of niggling him for quite a long period of time. At the start of the IPL, the likes of him and Flintoff were getting offered huge contracts to play in the IPL. And so in no way did I begrudge him wanting to play in it. It was just the difficulty was that England's schedule didn't allow them to do so. And there were some quite big points of principle at stake around players being able to miss test matches to play in the IPL or whatever, which the ECB, rightly in my opinion, were saying, like, once we go down that route, then 
what you're effectively saying is the IPL is more important than test cricket and what does that mean for the rest of the game and all that sort of stuff. And so trying to navigate our way through that was difficult and mainly that was between Kevin and his representatives and the ECB, so I, I was pretty much on the outside of it. But I could see towards the end it was really affecting him. It was affecting his performances to a degree. He really wasn't enjoying playing for effectively an employer that he didn't either like or trust. And so... Towards the end, I got more and more involved in it and uh, was trying to guide him through that. Probably I left it too late, actually, in terms of my involvement. Not that I necessarily would have made a difference. But by that stage, I think he'd sort of drawn the battle lines with the ECB. And then right at the end, it, it spilled onto the pitch. And that's where it became a big problem for me. You know, I, I, just the idea that he wasn't either fully committed to the team or that he was progressing his own agenda, that became a big issue and that... That was obviously the precursor to everything that happened at the end of 2012. The text messages, the much-discussed, disparaging text messages to his mates in the South African team about you whilst playing them. I mean, from the outside looking in, Andrew, that did seem like the ultimate breakdown in trust. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I don't apologise for saying that. You know, I think that was a big problem for me and one that I found it very hard to overcome in internally to be honest with you after that game I was retired so it wasn't like we had to share a dressing room anymore time's a good healer in that respect and and certainly when I look at it now it's always important to just think about the context that England cricket team environment you're with each other all the time it's stressful you're tired you're away from home it's relentless. It never stops. And I, and I think if all of us had been a little bit fresher and probably had a bit more time away from each other, we would have found a way through that before it got to that breakdown stage. But that wasn't what happened. From that moment on, there was obviously that, that issue between myself and Kevin, although that wasn't a big issue because I wasn't playing anymore. But there was a sort of a bigger issue around the ECB and some of the other players in the team and Kevin and, well, we, we all saw how that played out over the next couple of years. It was it was pretty uncomfortable for everyone, including Kevin, quite frankly, who, you know, rightly or wrongly felt that he was the aggrieved party and he had some very justifiable concerns and needs and wants and he just didn't feel that people were willing to listen to him. Obviously, at the time, no apology, no real contrition. That came later happily, didn't it? But uh, I imagine having worked so hard to build that kind of house of trust and and the teamship, the unity, must have been must have been quite destabilising. Andrew, your career was just phenomenally successful. You are only the third man after Len Hutton and Mike Brearley to captain England to, to Ashes series wins, home and away. Presumably that also then made you almost the perfect natural choice for management. Part of your job as director of cricket at the ECB was to, to plot English success at the World Cup in in 2019, we all remember that World Cup. It was just one of the most extraordinary, tumultuous days of sport in living memory. This may sound like a silly question, but do, do you think that that team had the same sort of levels of trust in each other that your world number one test side did? I thought it was better. I really did. When I look at the team that Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan built up, I, I mean, they were just 15 phenomenal individuals completely committed to this idea of winning the 2019 World Cup you know that idea of winning on home soil just comes along so seldom but also what Owen had done and Trevor both of them had done amazingly well is just completely embed this method this is the way we play and it's aggressive it's in your face we're taking pressure off ourselves by putting it on you from the outside really risky but actually because they'd done it so often that's what they focused on and that's what they committed to and that's what brought people together. We're doing something pioneering that's never been done before. We're playing a style that is exciting, engaging. People are loving watching us. And by the way, it's working and we're breaking records along the way and that, that just brought everyone together. So that I think the leadership did an incredible job, but we were very blessed to have a great group of players and individuals to help us get there. Like all these things, the story told after a World Cup is always like, it was beautifully planned and everything went exactly according to how we thought it would and aren't we great? The reality is never like that, isn't it? It's not linear in that sense. But yeah, very proud of the way the guys approached that whole tournament. And when the going got really tough in those last four or five games where they had to win them all, just recommitting to 
this isn't a time to be hesitant. This is a time to go out. And if we if we fall, we want to fall on our sword. And it was just so refreshing to see an England team playing in that way, really. Quite unusual, really. Certainly for those of us who've, who've watched for you know decades and been kind of tearing at our fingernails <laughs> every time England had gone out to bat, certainly through the 80s and the 90s. As somebody who was instrumental in kind of building what happened that summer, what were your emotions when... When England pulled it off in the most dramatic of fashions, in you know, in the, in the Super Over. Well, I mean, you know, as I said all the way through this, I'm. I like to think I'm pretty calm and composed. But on tell that me, day, tell I me, was, you lost it. I was completely. I was all over the shop, and I suppose you know, like when you're not in control of things, you're worse anyway. But the difficulty with things like World Cups is that it's a zero sum game. You're either a hero and literally a national hero, or you're glorious failures. Or inglorious failures. I mean, mostly in English cricket in World Cups, we'd just been awful failures. Yeah, very inglorious. So, yeah, whereas we got to the final and you, you knew that if we didn't win it, people would go, you know, England did well there, but. And so the, the difference between winning it and losing it, the, the margins were so great. I was there at the ground working for Sky and I, I just I felt a level of tension that weighed so heavily on me because. I felt even though it was meant to be, I just thought, I just didn't quite think we, it was right for us to win it. And so all the way through that game, I thought we were slightly second favourites. The whole way through, in, including up until probably the final ball of the Super Over, I always thought New Zealand are probably just going to do this. And so the relief that came with th that run out and... The emotions that followed, you know, there was all so much in it, wrapped in it for me because it was a project that I'd been very much involved in and that I'd sort of given my heart and soul to for a period of time and then having to step away because Ruth was ill and then not being in official capacity. It just sort of brought back so much over those last four years for me and I, I said at the time it was like the gods were smiling on us in the end and it just, it, it felt like the perfect fairy tale ending happens so infrequently in sport and certainly in English sport that it, you've got to savour those moments. Yeah, it was a special day. It really was a special day and made so many people so very, very happy. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. Listener.